Good morning and welcome. Good morning. Uh, there's no sunshine, but uh, as I said in my engagement group, Dorothy Sayers wrote that the English do not have a climate, they have weather. <laughs> First of all, I would like to apologize uh, for my English. Oh. Anna very kindly listened to this talk already and corrected my outrageous mispronunciations, but I think there, there are going to be some. So if uh, you do not understand a word or my sentence is muddled, feel free to raise your hand and ask for clarifications. I won't be offended. And I would like to thank the panel for inviting me. And I just found out that uh, Lindy Latham had a hand in it. So where's Lindy? Uh, I'm going to remember you in my prayers. <laughs> so I would like Ilaria to come and light the chalice. And our chalice lighting words are from the Bible, from Matthew, where Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bow. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. All right. And now I come in the <coughs> corner and I start with a puzzle. You need to help me with this puzzle. All right? So listen carefully. <laughs> and the grown-ups are not supposed to have. <laughs> okay, comes the puzzle. Without and Bobby's visitor, Homo habeva duos filic. <laughs> oh, don't laugh, it's not laughing matter. Et <laughs> ad plebens ad primum dixilic, filic, vade hodie operare in vinea mea. Ile autem respondes, ai nolo postea autem penitentia motus agit. <laughs> Accedens autem ad alterum dixit similitere. Ad ille respondes, ait eo dominens, et non ibi. 
the final is which language? No, no, but it's, you know, that game, warm, warm, warm. <laughs> well, this language you heard, the sentences, is Latin. And for quite a long time, this was the language of educated people. And it was the language of the church. So people would go to the church and they would hear this kind of sentences. They would not understand anything about it. <laughs> that was okay. Because they were not supposed to ask questions. They were just there to participate and the minister would know what he was, or she, he was talking about. <laughs> so anyway, in 1517, almost 500 years ago, there was a Catholic monk named Martin Luther. And he was very unhappy with the way the things in the church were going. So he sat down and wrote in 95 theses what he considered was wrong with the Catholic Church. Well, uh, the Catholic Church didn't like it.
changed his mind and went. The man asked his second son to go and work in the vineyard, and the second son said, oh yes, I go right now, but he didn't go. So Jesus asked his listeners, which of the two sons fulfilled their father's wishes? What do you think? Well, one said, I won't go. No. But then he changed his mind and went. The other said, I'll go, but he didn't. So which one? Well, actually neither one of them. <laughs> because what would have been the nice thing and the proper thing to do when your parents ask you to go and <laughs> Let us sing together hymn number uh, 73 from the green hymnal and 340 from the red one. And in the red one, uh, we are going to sing the first and the third verses. I'm sorry there weren't enough green hymnals.
Thank you. Before I start my talk, we'll do a little housekeeping, as Jane would put it. <laughs> and the housekeeping is uh, a little background information, because I don't think many of you, or I might confuse many of you in my talks talking about Hungary and Romania and Transylvania. <laughs> Our church, the Hungarian Unitarian Church, was established in Transylvania in 1568. At that time, Transylvania was part of Hungary. Transylvania, not at that time, but uh, from the beginning, Transylvania was part of the Hungarian kingdom. There were uh, 150 years when it was almost semi-autonomous, when parts of Hungary were run over by the Ottoman Empire. But otherwise, Transylvania was always part of Hungary. Well, we had this unfortunate penchant of always choosing the wrong side. <laughs> In the First World War, we really didn't have a choice, because at that time, Hungary and Transylvania were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So we went to war. You know the ending, and Transylvania in 1918-1919 was given as a prize of war to Romania. And it stayed part of Romania until the Second World War, where once again we took the same side. <laughs> and uh, during 1940 and 1944, when Germans were at their what would be the right expression, when Germany looked like winning, we got back not the whole Transylvania, but parts of Transylvania. But then after the end of the Second World War, Transylvania went once again to Romania and is there until this day. So, the Hungarian Unitarian Church, with all this moving, when after the Second World War, there was a border coming between Unitarians in these two parts. So the Hungarian Unitarians, for quite a long time, for more than two decades, uh, kept themselves to their ancient district formation. They were one district of the whole church. But then, with communism, it looked like nothing is going to change, and that they decided they have to establish themselves as a church. So they became the Hungarian Unitarian Church. You couldn't really use the word Hungarian in Romania, so we changed our name to Transylvanian Unitarian Church. And in 2012, the two churches, uh, decided that they should reunite under our former name, the Hungarian Unitarian Church. So today, the Hungarian Unitarian Church comprises the Unitarians in Hungary and in the in Transylvania, which is part of Romania. Here? <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Well, you uh, may wonder why I chose to talk um, to the children about uh, Luther and the Reformation and why I asked you to sing that song whose verses kind of today seem alien for us and even um, foreign with all that hatred and the other but you have to remember that at that time they were fighting uh, uh, fighting for their lives actually so uh, I, I did this because next year the Protestant Christianity will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Half a millennium is time enough to take stock of the ups and downs of the failures and successes of the ideal of Semper Reformanda. This was one of the logos of the Reformation, Semper Reformanda, always in need of being reformed and of its embodiment in the teachings and social stance of the different Protestant churches. Our Unitarian Church is a branch of the Reformation, for some a radical one, for others a wildling. Anna kindly pointed out that she doesn't know this word, and I said it means uh, a wild settling on a tree which you usually cut to make the tree healthy. <laughs> anyway, that's what the dictionary said. <laughs> so for, for some, we were a wildling which should have been trimmed, cut at the beginning. As in the context of the Declaration of Religious Tolerance in Transylvania in 1568, this did not happen we managed to survive on the fringe of Christianity. This ambiguous position of ours in the Christian world has accompanied us throughout our history and was made manifest once again by the fact that the Hungarian government, which a couple of years ago put into place a reformation commemorating committee with representatives of the Protestant churches and even with a consultative attendance from Catholics did not include us in it. But the ambiguity is not one-sided. At times it seems we ourselves are forgetful or insecure in claiming our heritage. Celebration of the 31st of October, the day Luther nailed his thesis, uh, has largely lapsed in our congregations. And though many of us deplored it, there was no concerted effort on institutional level to revive it. This detached attitude would be all right if we took the decisive step of leaving Christianity behind. But this is something unthinkable, as we are considering ourselves members of the Christian community. This, by and large, is not a matter of theology. It could not be, even if we wished it to, as by traditional standards of Christianity we are found wanting, but it's a matter of our ethnicity 
Hungarian Christians, Protestants and Catholics relying around for survival as a minority group in Romania. So we proclaim ourselves to be a Protestant Christian denomination with a liberal outlook, a view accepted or tolerated by those around us. But is it so? Are we really who we think we are? The theme of this summer school is change, which could be a dreaded or hoped for occurrence, a joyful or a shattering revelation, an aha moment or a tiresomely long course. The Reformation started as a desire for change and is considered by many as an ongoing process. The liberal wing of it was one of its most enthusiastic proponents and supporters, measuring, pondering, reasoning, discarding, searching for new ways is in our genes. This quest has no limits on personal level, but institutionally is much more problematic. The boundaries have certain elasticity, but there comes a time when you have to stop or the edifice will come crumbling down. The outside pressure keeps the walls in place, keeps more or less the homogeneity of the group, but it makes any change a long and careful process and at certain times an almost impossible undertaking. Two years ago, at the invitation of Martin Fieldhouse, I visited and preached in several congregations of the Western Union. My sermons were mostly about Transylvanian Unitarianism and why we consider ourselves a liberal religious movement even in the garb of traditional Christian forms. As ministers tend to do, I was emphatic in laying down the law <laughs> and making a case for our bona fide in the religious liberal world. I wrote about my revelation with regard to women ministers and our struggle to keep up the ideals and values of our founder, Francis David, even with all the constraints we face. If today I look back at those sermons, at my optimism for liberal causes, at my conviction that loyalty to the institution and its values comes before personal convictions, I am confused and a little insecure. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And these last two years had brought about events and confrontations which put to test and muddled what I thought was clear and reasonable, at least for me. Right now, the position expressed in those sermons <coughs> seems to me highly problematic. So what did I write in good faith two years ago? 
In the sermon about the position of women ministers in our church, I talked about my personal experience. As one of the first two women who graduated from the Protestant Theological Institute in the middle of the 90s and became Unitarian ministers, I entered a field dominated exclusively by men. We were considered oddities at that time, which was quite understandable in a setting where for more than 400 years, women sat in the pews and kept quiet in the church. If all the years of long struggle and living up to the expectations of others, church officials, colleagues, and congregations are seen from their point of view, then I expect I would be considered a feminist. But if after 19 years, and now two years later, it's 21 years of ministry, I see it from my point of view, then I am not a feminist, just a Unitarian minister who tries to respond as best as she can to her calling. My position on the issue of women in society, but especially in the church, has crystallized after many changes, detours, and blind alleys. I started as a woman working in a world of men when the first thing that was noticed was my gender, and my every word or act was judged through that lens. Once when I did a funeral service in the family of another minister, one of my male colleagues congratulated me with the words, you did that like a man. <laughs> he did not want to be, he's a very dear colleague, he did not want to be offensive or even tactless. Uh, he thought he was bestowing on me the highest praise he could think of. <laughs> He wanted to assure me that I came up to standards. <laughs> standards set by four centuries of male ministry. This made me balk, and I became aggressive, espousing all the feminist ideas at hand and usually giving long monologues <laughs> to whoever was willing to listen or whomever I could coerce to listen about this game in which all the rules were made by men and we did not have a chance if we did not find them. But in order to do so, we, the women, we had to be in a position to make our voice heard. So as a small village congregation minister, you are hardly in that position. So we started to trying to get into the decision-making bodies of the church, which we managed to do after several years. One of the issues which came up was the enlisting of students for the Theological Institute. Though the church opened the training for women, each year the executive council would debate heatedly on how many places should be reserved for training, and from those, how many for men, and how many for women. The ratio was usually three to one, in favor of men, of course. 
We battled heatedly first for positive discrimination with regard to women, then for gender equality, most of the time losing but having confidence that what we were trying to achieve in the church was going on slowly in the society too. Places and offices were offered for women in political parties, governing bodies and institutions. And as a result of positive discrimination, <coughs> at that time, I thought all this was marvelous and the only way to realize change. Now, as I am older and more cynical or wiser, who knows? <laughs> I cringe whenever I hear about positive discrimination, as I consider that it does more harm than good. For one, it gives the impression that there is nothing wrong with the system. We just need to fix a couple of screws, some minor adjustments, and everything will be fine. Well, no, nothing is fine, and nothing will be fine this way when instead of looking at the roots, we just trim the branches. On the other hand, positive discrimination often makes possible the dominance of mediocrity in the name of equality. So personally, I consider the whole concept dangerous and a dead end. It can bring change to some individual lives, but does nothing to alter the system which made it necessary in the first place. Another approach we took as women was to campaign for equality in numbers. Though why we considered at that time that a balancing the gender of ministers would be a great asset for the church, I cannot imagine. <laughs> I guess it was a reaction to the wall of opposition and distrust we were encountering. It took us a long time as individuals and as a decision-making body to realize that the true solution is not to put any gender specification or limitation on the students entering training. So this is how the things stand now, uh, but I have to tell you that this was not a popular decision, as even until this day, there are some who moan about the menace of feminization of the clergy. I think this slow and long process of change was for me a period of learning. My perception underwent a great transformation. When I started ministry, and for a long time afterwards, I perceived myself and unfortunately my work in the male-female dichotomy, dichotomy, you understand? because I was looking at it from other people's perspective. It took some time, but I finally found my own lens, looking at men and women primarily as human beings. For this, I have to be thankful to Dorothy Sayers, whose writing pointed it out for me, and I'm quoting her. A woman is just as much an ordinary human being as a man, 
with the same individual preferences and with just as much right to the tastes and preferences of an individual. What is repugnant to every human being is to be reckoned always as a member of a class and not as an individual, as an individual person. In a way, it was ludicrous and sad for me to realize that I have been preaching the teachings of Jesus, talking endless times about his attitude towards human beings, men and women, while I continually considered my life and ministry through the eyes of St. Paul and the Church Fathers. I wasted so much time in trying to square the circle, in trying to be a good woman minister, when all I needed to worry about was just to be a good minister. Feminism as a movement, even when aggressive and falling into extremes, achieved a lot of wonderful things, but did not win the day. Why? My idea is because it fought its battle from the wrong premise, challenging the status quo on gender basis, thus reinforcing what it wanted to abolish. The movement worked with the categories provided by the system, and this made it vulnerable and open to criticism. We cannot argue solidly for the status or position of women in society or institutions on the basis of our sex, but we could argue that as human beings, as individuals, we are entitled to as many opportunities and possibilities as any other human being. And the last quote from Sayers, mm -hmm. if it ever occurs to people to value the honor of the mind equally with the honor of the body, we shall get a social revolution of a quite unparalleled sort. Unitarianism and Unitarian Universalism from the beginning had a special sensitivity to the rights and aspirations of the individual, be it man or woman. And this gives us the opportunity to be at the forefront in helping women to reclaim their humanity. Let us give ourselves, and I'm talking about women, a chance to measure up not to other people's standards, but to our own gifts and abilities, to realize our own worth, to fulfill our own dreams and expectations. Let us push forth for a society which will value the honor of the mind as much as the honor of the body, which will honor the individual work and achievement, regardless of gender. This sermon was putting on paper my aha moment with regard to my ministry, and which I thought was a reasonable, a tenable position, much more reasonable and, and dignified than a battle of sexes. 
Next to the personal level, in another sermon, about, I wrote about why I consider ourselves to be religious liberals. I pointed out some of the visible and invisible differences between us and the other Unitarian or Unitarian Universalist communities. <coughs> While all the others have principles, we have a confession of faith. Why you and the others have coming of age and build your own theology courses, we have confirmation and catechism. While you draw from many sources and many religions, we stick to the Bible and we use Christian terminology. You talk about rites of passage, we have rituals. You have presidents, we have a bishop. Your congregations are autonomous, ours have a limited autonomy, and really important decisions have to be approved by the executive council, or consistory as we call it. You emphasize the individual quest, the needs and aspirations of the person, while we put the needs and aspirations of the community first. Then I looked behind these differences in searching for the underlying values and I came up with the following statements. For me as a Christian, religion is about my intrinsic relationship with God, my fellow beings and the world around me. It is the sacred I carry in myself I recognize in others, and which I try to preserve according to my best knowledge and capabilities. It is what Jesus thought when he talked about the seed of the kingdom of God. As a Christian and as a Unitarian, I understand that other people think about the divine in different terms or not at all. Yet behind their words and actions, there is a reverence and concern for all the living, and they try to live according to this. For me as a parent, the catechism is important because it is the alphabet of our religious life. It is our duty to teach our children the basics of their faith, and then let them decide for themselves which course they want to follow. For me as a believer, the confession is the quintessence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. <laughs> of the faith of my community, my ancestors, it is the golden rule. It helps me articulate my faith, though I am free not to obey it. For me, as a member of a denomination, being Unitarian is not just about a shared faith, but as much about loyalty, allegiance, and willingness to compromise. We survive throughout the centuries by the individuals giving up freely some of their freedom for the sake of community and I am prepared to do so even today. Now this is, when I put it down, 
uh, it was so easy to put it on the paper. But after two years now, uh, it's really very hard. And you'll see in a little while why. For me, as a Unitarian and liberal, the freedom of religion and acceptance of other views and positions is a part of my religious identity, but I expect reciprocity. My missionary work starts and ends with me. A true mission is a way of life which does not need long explanations and lots of pamphlets. For me as a Hungarian living in Romania and as a religious person, all minority issues, be they pertaining to ethnicity or sexual orientation, are important and have my heartfelt support. For me, as an Eastern European, the dream of a united Europe is appealing, but first and second-rate citizenship is not. A united Europe, where all cultures and groups are respected and valued, is important, but historical amnesia is not. History is not about political correctness and not acknowledging our Christian roots seems to me ludicrous. We cannot deny who we are as Europeans. Our culture, history, identity is rooted in Christianity, whether we acknowledge it or not. Perhaps when we learn to see all other human beings, regardless of their background, as primarily human beings, we will be able to step out of all the categorizations which make our life miserable. And lastly, for me as a human being, as a child of God, preserving the earth is as much a civic duty as a religious one. My conclusion was, I think of myself as a religious liberal. You might question that. And I invite you to think about the many ways in which you, as liberals, are religious, even if you are uneasy with the term. We are fellow travelers, sharing the road, following the same goal, even if what we carry in our backpack to sustain us might be different. These were some of the ideas and arguments I presented two years ago, which I find highly problematic today. What has changed in the meantime? Well, there were plenty of changes, but I would like to focus on three events. The decision of the Latvian Lutheran Church in June this year to ban women's ordination. The immigration influx in the European Union, the hatred rhetoric which is going on, the weak or no answer of the Christian churches, the intensification of the nationalist right-wing rhetoric throughout the continent. And the third one is the amendment debate to the Romanian constitution regarding marriage. 
These events seem unrelated, happening in different churches, nations, geographical areas, yet they are all warning signals of the climate which is slowly seeping into our lives. The first one, half a millennium after the Reformation, I thought the Protestant churches with their well-established theologies and practices, with their embeddedness in the social fabric of the society, can hold no surprises. I thought that the squabble over the ordination of women for ministry was something of the past. These last years, the ordination of women bishops in some of the Protestant churches and here in England, with all the heated debates, gave, gave hope for a secure and unquestionable future. And how wrong I was. The Synod of the Latvian Lutheran Church this June changed the wording of the church rule and instead of the word anyone, rephrased it as follows. Any male candidate who according to the regulation set by the church is called by God and trained for the ministry can seek ordination. Before that it was anyone who is called by God and gets training can seek ordination. For the synod of the Latvian Lutheran Church, God is calling presumably just man. Or if the calling is for everyone, and it's really sad because was not this one of the basic concepts of reformation, priesthood of all believers. The training and ordination is a prerogative of the synod of the Lutheran Church, whose members in their great wisdom know God's mind and can arrogate themselves the choice. The second thing has been happening for years throughout Europe. And two years ago, I considered our common Christian roots, our European culture, our values and ethos, a possible threat which could help in establishing an understanding, a basis for dealing um, uh, with the problems of the European communities and dealing with the influx of human misery and suffering. I consider this kind of broad Christianity or broad um, our Christian roots not in a parochial view. And I, I didn't think that this would mean intolerance. I didn't think that this would mean Christianity used as a political slogan to foment religious division and fear. And I didn't think this means Bible, you, the Bible used as a weapon for hatred and discrimination. Some of the European politicians who were not concerned at all with Christianity and left it out of the treaties as irrelevant, suddenly discovered that Christianity is the backbone of society 
and it's severely threatened by the flux of immigrants and their mostly Muslim religion. I cannot imagine a more shameful act for our common heritage and values than the declarations of different European countries, mostly Eastern Europeans, <coughs> that they would not take in refugees or that they would consider accepting just Christian refugees. And Hungary is the first one of them. And uh, he is she or he, a country, I don't know if it's a he or a she or it, is building walls. The media is full of hatred talk in preparation for the referendum on quota of if they take any refugees or how many in autumn. And if you dissent, you are labeled liberal, traitor, not proper Hungarian. Romania for the present is out of this turmoil. No sane refugee would consider settling down here, <laughs> there, back home. But the close ties of the Hungarian minority of us with Hungary opens up the door for the nationalist, intolerant, Christian fundamentalist discourse and attitudes. The Hungarian prime minister and its government are perceived as saviors of Christendom, strong advocates of traditional values who could save Europe from its own impotence and decadence. Though immigration is not a hot topic at the moment in Romania, the amendment to the constitution regarding marriage is. The Romania Coalition for Family, which includes 23 NGOs and associations, under the wing of the Orthodox Church has gathered more than three million signatures in support of an initiative to amend the, consti to amend the Constitution to only allow the marriage between men and women and implicitly ban same-sex marriage. Not that same-sex marriage is accepted at the moment. The proposal suggests uh, altering Article 48 which currently states that the family is founded on the freely consented marriage of the spouses, their full equality as well as the right and duty of the parents to ensure the upbringing, education, and instruction of their children. The rewarding aims to remove the reference to spouses, which would have given a certain liberty in considering same-sex marriage, replacing it with a specific no. reference to one man and one woman. The initiative started last year, and all the churches were asked to support it, which mostly they did. Our church has held aloof for a while and did not give an opinion. There was a precedent and a reason for this. In the summer of 2013, when bishops of the churches gathered together in Bucharest for a consultation regarding this issue, they put together a statement with regard to family and marriage as a union between a man and woman which our bishop did not sign. 
As we are a small denomination, this did not make any impact in Romanian circles, but made quite a wave in the Hungarian community and churches and among our membership. There were many angry voices which questioned the bishop's attitude, especially from the Unitarians living in Hungary, as in the Hungarian constitution, the marriage is explicitly stated as a union between a man and a woman. For the other Hungarian denominations in Romania, this was another clear sign that we are not really Christian. So when this winter, the question came up again as churches mobilized their membership for signatures, the high officers of our church after some debate and with regard to the divisive nature of the subject among our membership, opted for silence. But some of us thought this unacceptable and we <clears throat> put together a statement which was released to the press under the name of David Geru, the deputy bishop as we thought that a personal statement would be more powerful than a group one. And the statement is as follows. For the dignity of human creation, some of you might have read it or heard about it. A statement regarding an amendment to paragraph 48 of the Romanian constitution. As it is widely known, there is currently a nationwide effort to collect signatures in support of amending paragraph 48 of the Romanian Constitution containing the definition of marriage for the purposes of constitutional law. This initiative, created by the Citizens' Organization Coalition for Families, has been an important issue for wide swathes of our society. Several Romanian church leaders have also taken to expressing their views in support of the amendment. The governing bodies of the Hungarian Unitarian Church have not issued an official, official statement in this matter. I will therefore express my opinion as an individual respecting the freedom of opinion of all church members and citizens but using my opportunity for freedom of speech in this important matter of conscience. The subject of the constitutional amendment is a proposal to change the definition of marriage contained in the paragraph titled the family from being the union of two persons to the union of a man and a woman. But the initiative inevitably emphasizes the issues of gender identity and sexual orientation. While the institutions of marriage and family are doubtlessly imbued with moral values, as well as significance for our society and community, there are gaping chasms among the various understandings of gender identity and sexual orientation. What some consider sinful, immoral, and godless, others consider natural aspects of the divinely created order of the world. To me, unconditional respect for and protection of the dignity of God's human creation 
is a basic theological value. I consider gender identity and sexual orientation to be scientific realities. Living in accordance with one's gender identity and choosing one's spouse are basic human rights. In my opinion, if the church that serves both God and humankind is to be faithful to the gospel's teaching of unconditional love and acceptance, it cannot stand behind, behind societal prejudices or discriminate among believers in matters of their human rights. Prejudices create impersonal categories in order to make us forget that behind each label there are sensitive and honorable human beings longing for happiness and fulfillment who are also God's children. Like my responsible fellow citizens, I worry about societal phenomena that endanger our ideals of marriage and the lives of families. However, I do not consider minority gender identities or sexual orientations a source of these dangers. The foundation of marriage is mutual love and commitment and the right to it belongs to every human being. We put forward this statement uh, on February the 5th in Kolozhvar. And with the release of this statement, pandemonium broke loose in the church and in the Hungarian community and media, both in Transylvania and in Hungary. And it's still going on. I just looked at my emails this morning. The outside attacks were expected, though we did not think that they will be so severe. What was in a way unexpected was the reaction in our community. The Hungarians from Hungary put forth a statement to the press in which they clarified that this was a personal opinion and by no means reflecting the official position of the church. According to their statement, the Hungarian Unitarians are promoting the marriage between a man and a woman as basis of the Christian family as stated in, and just look at the order, at the order of what uh, the basis for their statement. As stated, so the promote as basis of the Christian family as stated in the the, on the first place is the Hungarian constitution. <laughs> the Bible gets a second place. <laughs> and the work of Elek Rezi, professor of Unitarian Systematic uh, Theology, ends up in the third place. So if the constitution says so, then yeah, why not? So anyway, I'm angry. I'm sorry. <laughs> With a few exceptions, the reactions from the ministers and parishioners were negative too. In March, at our regular executive council meeting, and our executive council is the governing body of our church between GAs, with uh, ministers and lay people. The representatives from Hungary asked for an inquiry to be set up. 
and the president of our minister's association asked for disciplinary measures against those who wrote the statement. In the following month, at other executive council meetings and at our GA this year, some of the members proposed the setting up of a committee which would clarify and define the Unitarian position on marriage and family. In July, our GA, with a comfortable majority, rejected this proposal. But this is not the end of the matter. In autumn, when the Parliament will decide about the referendum, the question will be once again up front. So here are three hot topics which question or shake my former stance and which could change everything. These are not anymore about abstract theological debates, about splitting the hair in fours, as ministers like to do, but about concrete instances and facts which put to test our values, our loyalties, and demand answers and actions. And I really love this question. Do I have to recant? 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 Do I have to recognize that holding up a religious liberal position in the question of women and move it, trying to move it beyond gender battles is not a viable solution? Do I have to acknowledge that my liberal position on the subject of immigration or same-sex marriage should come second, if at all, if it questions or undermines my loyalty to my church? Do I have to recognize that our religious liberalism, and I'm talking about our situation, so in Transylvania, in Hungary, can be proclaimed individually, but it is not really an institutional option when our survival is at stake. Well, do I have to recant? One of the answers would be an emphatic no. These facts do not change anything. As long as I stay in my comfort zone with those who embrace the same values and share the same ideas. These facts do not change anything as long as my church still trains women for ministry, as long the society I live in more or less tries to adjust itself to gender equality, as long as immigrants give a wide birth to my country, and as long as my wayward opinion is a minority one in the church and does not threaten the institution. I can be as high-minded as I wish to, provided I stay in my bubble and preach to the converted. I can feel secure and smug in my idea of what liberal Christianity means for me and for Unitarianism, even if the majority of my church has completely different ideas out of conviction or necessity.
We can coexist peacefully with some minor skirmishes, but on the whole, sweeping the differences under the carpet and ignoring challenging issues. This is the best policy. Keeping the status quo with our membership, with the other Christian churches, with the Hungarian and Romanian government, that's why the constitution is important, Keeping the status quo is the only way of survival for a small denomination like ours. And believe me, we are good at this game. We have been playing it for four and a half centuries. Our institutional policy is pretty much prescribed by our circumstances. But where does the religious and spiritual heritage part come in? Where is our impact on society? Nowhere, really, as we do not dare or wish to proclaim our different opinion, if they are different, from the Christian majority. We are willing to deny to the outside world our uniqueness, our freedom, our alternate understanding of what Christianity means out of fear, defensive habit. Europe is in turmoil, but this, not change, this does not change everything in the even tenor of our days. We are too small, too insignificant, and at present too removed from all of it to give it a thought. I am not naive, and I understand that our institutional policy, our governing bodies, try to act in the best interest of the Hungarian Unitarian Church. And at present, this does not entail major changes. But to this question of do I have to recant, there is another side where the answer could be yes. Where's Danny? Might not. <laughs> yes, no. Yes, this changes everything. Not on an institutional, but on a personal level. The policy makers have to take into account our circumstances, our relationship with governments of two countries, and this absolves them in a way, that's Christian charity. But on personal level, we have been found wanting. The personal responsibility of ministers and our educated lay people comes to the fore. What have we done for our values, ideas, for these sensitive issues in our local communities. We let our parishioners dwell complacently in the myth that we are no different from the other Christian denominations. We let them believe that our Christianity is not that different from theirs, and their understanding of what a Christian means, with some exceptions, is the norm for us too. Though we have 25 years of partnership with American Unitarian Universalist congregations behind us, 
we never talked about gay lesbian issues openly. Our members' education on this topic came from the media, which focuses on gay parades, from campaigning hate talks of politicians and intolerant statements of other Christian churches. We let them believe that this is something remote from their life, a perversion of the decadent vest, and never pointed out the number of bachelors or old maidens in our villages, or the fact that there might be members of their family struggling with this issue. What have we been doing in countering the demagoguery of the threats of the Hungarian government about immigrants overrunning our villages? Or about the Islam destroying Christianity? Or about same-sex marriage undermining the ideal of Christian family? Well, not much. And I do not know how long, as persons, sorry, how long can we hide behind the compromise for institutional survival? Well, if the Unitarian Church, the Hungarian Unitarian Church, is not the liberal religious denomination we think it is, it is not the fault of the institution. It is mainly ours. And the weight of the responsibility is with the clergy. We can't make sudden changes on the institutional level, but we have the power to do it on personal and congregational level. And this is how the Reformation started, with one person, with one small faith community. In the 1930s, there was a French philosopher called Julien Benda, who wrote a book, La Trahison des Clercs, translated here in Britain as The Great Betrayal. And he used the word clerk from its Latin roots, clerus, clerus, which originally designated the priesthood, but by his time it meant the intellectuals the educated people, the custodians of the eternal values and ideals of human society. Benda's argument was that the intellectuals sold their integrity to political ideologies, thus betraying their true vocation. The eternal values are beyond national and parochial interests as they are the repositories of our human aspiration. If we look at Europe today, 
with the alliance between politics and churches, between political parties and committed intellectuals. I couldn't find the English, the proper English expression for intellectual engagé. But you, you know what. Uh, with right wing raising its head, with the threat of the European Union falling apart, we have to concede that there is much truth in Benda's opinion, even today. So can we change something? When Luther was called in front of the imperial diet of worms to recant, he said those famous words, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Well, here we stand. You in England, I in Transylvania, and many Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists around the world trying to live up to our calling and trying to devise ways to act out our fate in a responsible way. This is our inheritance. I recognize that I too am my church. Even if we have differences of opinion, I am part and parcel of my church's values and mistakes. <coughs> I am part of the whole. Instead of recanting, I need to do more for my fellow ministers, for my parishioners, for our membership to understand better their faith, their values, their possibilities, to help them enlarge their vision. It will not be easy for any of us. The Changes have started here too with Brexit, and more will follow. Change is frightening and nerve-wracking, especially if you are experiencing it alone or in a small community. But it is the only way, and I personally think that we have to be much louder which we are good at, much more militant, which we are not good at, in our communities and societies, if we want our voice to be heard. And we need each other. Well, at least we, the Hungarian Unitarians, need you very much. Our almost 200 years of connections helped us in the past to move to a more liberal outlook. And we need you even more so today, when our young people are brainwashed with right-wing, conservative, hatred-fueled, nationalist ideologies. We Unitarians, or we children of God, are, or people of all the earth are custodians of eternal values, not for keeping, but for passing on. It's not much use preaching to the converted 
We have to move out of our comfort zone. We have to act out our faith and values because there is more than ever a need in Europe, a need in all our countries for the voice of reason, for the good news of love, for tolerance, for understanding. If we truly are who we proclaim ourselves to be, then we have to assume our responsibility according to our calling. And I hope that in time, this may change everything. This is just a hope at present. But as the Bible puts it, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So be it. Amen. Thank you. We are not going to have a prayer, but we are going to have <clears throat> a time of reflection if Howard can manage <laughs> the music. Uh, it's going to be the last movement of Mendelssohn Bartholdi's third symphony, um, better known as Reformation Symphony. He took the tune we sang today and put it on music. So while you listen to it, think about this is where our story started and think about your inheritance as a person, as a family, as a faith community.
I'm sorry. I just realized that uh, I passed the time I was supposed to keep to. It's not going to be a, a blessing, but a reminder, which I hope you will take with you. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. May our inheritance be delightful and never a burden. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.